0: Hello and welcome to Meet the Artist podcast series, hosted by the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture. My name is Matthew Martinez, I am the current deputy director at the museum. Located on ancestral Pueblo land in so-called Santa Fe, New Mexico, or Ogapogue, White Shaw Water Place, Mayak is one of the four museums in the Museum of New Mexico system. Mayak is a premier repository of native art and material culture that tells the oral histories of the people of the Southwest, from ancestral stories through contemporary art. Like everything else, the ongoing coronavirus pandemic has significantly shifted the way the museum reaches our audiences, and we are using virtual events and digital programs to connect with our local community. As part of this effort, Maya has continued to support indigenous communities by hosting several native artists on a YouTube series, also called Meet the Artist, to reach a broader audience and in response to the growing demand for online content, we are repurposing these interviews into a podcast. In this series, Mayak curatorial staff takes some time to speak with local artists about their work, how the pandemic has affected their practice, and what they've been up to in the past year. In this episode, Lilia McEnany catches up with Mateo Romero, a painter from Cochiti Pueblo, as he reflects on his work and the work of other artists who inspire his powerful images of the Tewa world. Mateo, along with his brother Diego, was Mayak's 2019 living treasure.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Mayak's Artist and Scholar Dialogue Series where Mayak staff and curators will be speaking with different artists, anthropologists and archeologists about their work, the impact the pandemic has had on their research or artistic practices and just what they've been up to in the past several months. My name is Lilia McEnany and I'm a curatorial assistant at the museum and today we'll be chatting with Mateo Romero, a painter from Cochipopo. Along with his brother Diego, Mateo was Mayak's 2019 Native Treasures living treasure, and last year we worked together to put together an exhibition of their work, The Brothers Chongo, a tragic comedy in two parts, which unfortunately closed earlier this year, but Mateo's work will also be featured in Mayak's renewal of our permanent exhibition here now and always, which is set to open in 2022, so it's safe to say that we're big Romero fans at the museum, but before we start chatting with Mateo, I'd like to briefly acknowledge the place where this conversation It's happening even though we're chatting virtually in Ogopoge within the Tewa world. As a non-native person living in so-called Santa Fe, I am a guest in the ancestral homelands of the Tewa people and I wish to acknowledge all of the native people past, present, and future who walk on these lands. And so now we can get started. So, Mateo, thank you for joining us. So for those of the viewers who don't know you, why don't we start with an intro, who you are, what you do, and a little bit about your practice.
2: Sure, for, you know, firstly, I like to say, I love that you have those Tewa names for Santa Fe, Ogopoge, and, you know, Poblaki is Posuague, Because in my work, I do a lot of landscape painting, and it's a lot of Northern New Mexico space. And I use the original Tewa words, the names of the spaces that I paint. So I love that that there's a etymology and a history that's indigenous that kind of comes out. So I just wanted to say thank you for, for doing that because I do that in terms of what I'm, I'm trying to accomplish with my landscape work. And this is native land and native space. And it, it's also related to Alfonso Ortiz and what he wrote in Table World. And he was on my MFA review committee at UNM years ago. And some of his writing is really interesting. He talks about time, space, and becoming in the table world, and how these ideas of language and name and place are linked to a kind of existential idea of being. And so, sort of what constitutes being in a kind of human sense for Pueblo people and for people. So, I, I just want to say thanks for that. I, my name is Mateo Romero, I'm a Coach Di Pueblo tribal member, I'm a painter and I I do a variety of different types of painting. Earlier on in my career, I was probably most known for doing mixed media, photographic Pueblo dancers, where i take images, usually from my own photography, of Rio Grande Pueblo dancers, and I'd place those in canvases and then paint back on top of that and back into it with acrylic paint. Recently, I've shifted into more landscape work, and I've been using uh, oil paints and palette knife for some very direct, you know, all palette knife, very physical surfaces. And as I touched on earlier, these are, you know, northern New Mexico landscapes. These are the table world, and we do bring out the original names of the places and talk about the history and the etymology of the space.
1: Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about the painting behind you? It's absolutely gorgeous.
2: Sure, thank you. This is a large format. It's figure ground. It's native horse horse riders. It's a very expressionistic use of color, kind of romantic color linked to romanticism. And it's got very expressionistic brushwork. It's figure ground. If, you, if I move my head a little bit, you can see it's got some really interesting shadows. And reflections in the water in front of the the riders. And you know, in that respect, it's kind of an homage to Earl Biss' work. Um, he's a crow painter who does the the horses and the riders with the reflections in the water. It's based in you know earlier existing work. It references earlier paintings
1: of that type. That's something that I really love about your work, like in the Mondo Pueblo one where you have the rabbit for Julie Buffalo head. I think that's just such a unique thing. To actively like, you know, acknowledge your colleagues and friends.
2: The painter David Solley has a quote, which I love. And he says that all painting references existing earlier painting. And I love that idea, which means in a sense that there's a syntax or a language that painters speak. You know, David Solly also writes in one of his monographs about painters you know, using this language, developing a language. But it is based in other painting. All painting is based in existing painting. So it's a, a kind of, a, it's a reference or a language of syntax that painters speak and that begins in the work of other, other artists. Sali says, and I believe that there is a kind of quest that painters engage in, which is to find core painting, paintings which speak directly to them and which have what he calls core or kind of a vision embedded in them. Yeah, I, I have found that in, in Earl Biss's work and also in Julie Buffalo Head's work and also, you know, in David Solly's work and, and in Lucian Freud's work and Elmer Bischoff and Bay Area landscape painters and Nathan Olivera. You know, there's this really, you know, Matisse, going back to Matisse and, and later Diebenkorn Figurative stuff. So there, there is a history of syntax, and most artists, most painters that are fluent in what they're doing or fluent in the medium of paint, they're pretty aware of the history of painting. The idea that all painting is based in and is a reference to existing painting. So when I find something like a little Julie Buffalohead moment, which really speaks to me, I try and you know kind of lift that out and use it in my own work in a way that's not too, it's not plagiarism, but but it's a reference for homage, And with the Earl Bist stuff, you know, once again, I'm trying to find something which is core and using it in a way which is my own, using my own voice, but also it does have a very, there's a very conscious reference to what he was doing in terms of the shadows and the lights and the reflection of the water and the atmospheric quality in painting. Absolutely.
1: So how has the pandemic changed your artistic Mm. practice? Has it changed how you paint or what you paint or how you think about painting?
2: Well, it's changed everything. I'm not sure it's changed <laughs> the painting so much. It's changed my life. It's been difficult in terms of, we talked about this earlier, my studio hasn't been open. So that's shifted physically how I've been doing the paintings. I, I did some paintings earlier on that were responses to the pandemic. I don't know if you saw it, but I did a piece which I posted it on Instagram, I think, and maybe on Facebook because people weren't actually going into spaces to look at paintings. So there was a, there wasn't a physical Venue, but I did a painting of um, two native figures in a car with they had these little, you know, face masks on and they had these, they're lifting up guns. And it, I think I called the piece Signifying Virus. And it was kind of at the beginning of the pandemic. So There was actually an attempt to sort of grapple with some of that stuff as it came out, which I thought was pretty successful. I mean, I enjoyed the process. But ultimately speaking, in a more complete sense, I I don't think it's really changed the painting so much. I I think it's changed people. It's changed me. It's changed how I do things. People aren't going into physical spaces to look at shows or exhibits. Sure as a museum space, you've experienced that. Mm -hmm. And just talking with dealers and everything's happening virtually. It's all exhibits and sales and all kind of publications. Are happening online. It's all online platforms, which is a huge shift. We just went through the Indian market here, and that's really the high watermark of Santa Fe Native Arts in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And there was no physical face to face. There was no opening. There were a handful of openings, but they weren't heavily attended, and people were doing everything on uh, digital platforms with very.
1: Varying... How have you found that? I found
2: it. Uh, you know, surprisingly, found it really, really good for me. I was able to adapt to that format. I. I had have younger college-age kids who take all my stuff and put it up and do what needs to happen for me because I'm not very literate with any of this electronic stuff. I'm kind of semi-literate with digital information and computer apps and how it all works. But I have younger kids who do it all. And if I need someone to do something like take a photograph, I can hire people locally that will do work for me and make it happen. So we didn't have any problems adjusting to that or making changes. And it was really good for us. We use Swaya and their ArtSpan connection and ArtSpan is a partnership with Swaya that they used to push their virtual market nationally. So we had great sales and attention out of state from people that weren't Indian market collectors. There were new collectors that were looking at landscape and this type of landscape. We're doing this heavily painted, very physical, very muscular landscape. And they responded to that. It wasn't looked at as a regional type of work. It was just looked at as American painting. Painting, mm-hmm. and it, it hit well for us in Northern California and Utah, all places. We had heavy interest in collectors outside of the Native American collecting realm from Utah. So we did really good with that. I know that artists, older Native artists, that didn't have support from their own family or from people that were able to help them translate their work into this digital format, they probably didn't do so well. When I mean, we looked at the ArtSpan stuff and the Swaya stuff, and a lot of artists didn't have homepages to link to. They didn't have the complete situation; wasn't complete for them because of whatever reason. I think that one of the, one of the things that's you know I've, I've identified as being potentially difficult for older native populations is they're not digitally literate. I'm not digitally literate, but I have people that work with me who do this for me. And if you don't have you know if you don't have kids in college right now, if you don't, at least in high school, it might be hard to access that people to, to do all this stuff. So there's a generation gap. People over the age of maybe 55, native people over. the age of 55 could be left out of this digital experience.
1: Yeah, and it's not just digital literacy, it's also just reliable access to internet that is another part of the problem. So, I mean, on one hand, you're really getting an amazing increase in audience, like you said, but what are the trade-offs there for different people? I think it will be interesting to see what parts of this online pivot endure post-pandemic. If Swaya or different art markets will continue with the online markets and maybe do a hybrid version of some kind, or where do you think that's going to go? I
2: think that's the direction it's going. You know, we had information from other artists. You know, I was talking to Kara Romero, my sister-in-law, and she does wonderfully nationally off of her own website. She pushes her own work and she's been doing this for a long time. It's been really good for her. And she's been telling me for like maybe a couple of years now that, that I had to do this. I had to get national and I had to push my own message, my own work. And I was kind of complacent. I just thought, well, you know, I have this kind of regional coverage. Ridge and I've got a local Santa Fe art dealer, and I'm doing pretty well. I don't, I don't know that I need to do all this this extra work. And when the art span thing happened nationally with Swai it really opened my eyes up. I was, you know, she was absolutely right. She hit the nail on the head. There is a, a larger national audience, as it's, 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 it's this bigger market, and it's not regional. It's, it's American painting. Mm-hmm. They're looking at work, and they're collecting work and promoting it. And I was off. I was I was mistaken. I, I underestimated what I was doing, and I underestimated myself and my audience. And when I did put my feet into this this larger national audience, it was great. It is the way of the future. The way of the future will be these hybrid markets where we're meeting face-to-face with the uh, collectors we know. And the collectors we know, the audience hasn't changed so much for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. It's been pretty homogenous. There hasn't been an influx of new collectors under the age of 65 in Native Art. I imagine you've experienced a lot of that at the museum. And you probably have the same docents and the same patrons and the same donors and the same people same audience it's pretty homogenous from santa fe to taos to scottsdale we have you know the same it's kind of it's a little bit static and then when you so going forward i think that this digital platform with with this possibility to go national with partnerships with places you know organizations like Artspan. i think that will be the future because it breaks the native art experience out of a regionalism you know the artist is ready. It moves their work into an American art experience. You, know, you become an American painter in a sense, or you have access to collectors who are into American painting or American sculpting. It's not a regionalism. It's an American moment, right? And many of the native artists I know are ready for that. There's amazing sculptors and painters and jewelers and videographers and filmmakers and people. People are ready to put their work out in a national context. And so I think I think going forward will be that model you're talking about the hybrid model it would be nonsensical not to have all the tools at your disposal it would be kind of retro retrograde not to Absolutely. do that
1: yeah and now that we know that it is possible why not and i think it's also we always
2: we always knew we just didn't we didn't take it serious you know we, we became complacent yeah. because people take care of us so well here and we, we have this following and people love us and we love the community and people do so much for us as artists here and so it's gave a kind of complacency that it wasn't you know necessary to change or to grow or to challenge yourself. But once you do the, those things, you understand that there's a broader audience. And that's that's an amazing thing to be able to move more regionalism in your art and your mentality and your aesthetic into just a mainstream experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So and I mean, thing, yeah. yeah, and we're seeing that. I think it's in line with a lot of the conversations that are going on in museums and in academia about what American art is, right? Like the Met just hired their first full-time curator of Native art in their American section. I read
2: that, yeah. there are four major museums that canceled a Philip Guston retrospective because he's dealing with a Ku Klux Klan imagery and the American experience and the history of America. And so there's also been a failing in museums. There's been some museums that have risen up, and like you're saying, the Met is taking on this, this challenge and they're struggling with it. And other museums have actually turned away from controversy and from having meaningful discourse at a time in America. When race is so central to what's happening in the public discourse, a lot of these museums have, have turned away from that and they postponed the philip Guston retrospective because it was too edgy for them it dealt with topical stuff that was happening around them they, they were comfortable with that the discourse is not controlled by a museum at this point. museums would actually i think serve themselves by becoming relevant and stepping into this space and taking this on because it's what the country is dealing with but the museum's not rising to the challenge, they're not going to stop the discourse from happening because it's so broad now. There's there's such a pervasive discourse in the streets and on social media that it's not possible to stop this stuff. The message gets out and the museums are actually the ones that become sort of ossified. They have, they have a potential to become irrelevant. People just like, hey, we're, we're onto this new this new consciousness we don't want to go to a museum and look at navajo weaving i love navajo weaving but it it may be not central to the discourse of what's happening right now in america they might want to see something like a Philip Guston painting, or they might want to see a Kent Munkman painting, and they want, might want to see something which is speaking about this moment right now that everyone's experiencing. They can go out into a protest in the street and get this information. Why would they want to go up to a museum in Santa Fe and look at old baskets or something? Not, not to knock the baskets, but I'm just saying the zeitgeist of this moment is such that this message is, is on fire. Everywhere you go, this message is emblazoned on the public consciousness. And why wouldn't other institutions want to embrace that? that and become part of it. And in doing that, they kind of serve their purpose. They become transmitters and repositories of the, of the message mm-hmm. instead of being scared about it, shying away from it and trying to censor. I think act has been really good about putting controversial kind of heavy hitting content out there. I think you guys have done well. I've been in experiences with museums. But they've kind of censored the artists at times and shied away from topical content-based work. myac hasn't done that. So I'm a strong myac supporter. Um, you guys have done a lot for me. and But also, I think, in a larger trajectory, you guys have done a lot for the audience by putting work out there, which is really hard-hitting. You guys have put out stuff which is challenging, and you haven't shied away from these things we've been talking about. So I actually applaud what you guys have done. And I think also also is a softer touch at act with, you know, the interesting pottery exhibits and the history of pottery and all this right. stuff going on. So I think you guys have actually risen to this challenge, but also maintained some of the softer, more beautiful moments of the history of Native people, too. So I, I give you guys a, a thumbs up. Unlike the museums who didn't do the Guston exhibit, you guys, yeah. I think, have really risen to the challenge. And that's, that's I guess, the closing note, is that I think cool. as artists and as museums and as art audience and patrons and collectors, we need to rise to this challenge of what the country's going to be. You know, what what is the country going to be? Art is this amazing medium where we convey these messages, we talk about these ideas, we imagine more perfect futures, or we talk about the history of people that, you know, where things have gone wrong in in our society, and we reinvestigate that through art. We talk about it, bring it back out. And you know, as Native people in particular, we've had such a contentious history with with America that, you know, we're both object and subject. American colonialism. We're both the artist who creates the work in the museum, and we're sort of the subject of the conversation that happens in the museum. So right. we're, 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 we're what Freud, you know, someone like Marx would call us the means of production and the product, right? We're actually both okay. things simultaneously. And I think about my act, that there's a really interesting attempt to talk about that. That how, What does it mean to be both the medium of the message you're conveying and the message simultaneously as a, as a contemporary Native artist. I think you guys have done that. So I guess that'd be my closing yep. remark is that I appreciate what you guys are
0: doing. Up
1: there. All right. Well, thank you everybody for watching and thank you, Mateo, for your time.
0: Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for joining us today. And don't forget to visit us online at mayaklab.org for information on our exhibits, to learn about upcoming events, or to plan your next in-person visit. To watch the full version of this interview, follow us on the Mayak YouTube channel. This podcast has been produced by Gladys Rimkis with editorial support from Lilia McEnany and Matthew Martinez. Special thanks to Jacob Shahey from Santa Clara Pueblo for providing the music for this podcast. Follow him on TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Be sure to check out his music, available for streaming on Spotify, Apple Music, and SoundCloud. This series is funded by the Henry Luce Foundation.